Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The history of counting the beans of any economy starts with Leontief and Tinbergen back around the vicinity of World War II. On from that was a giant of economics at Pennsylvania, Lawrence Klein. He's the one that invented how we figure out what the U.S. economy uh, is doing. He was the first doctoral candidate of the giant Paul Samuelson. It, it devolves down many years later to the Blue Chip Award. Ellen Zentner, Morgan Stanley, did something extraordinary. She put together four years of data at Morgan Stanley and did it with the smallest standard error in 20 years. Now joining us, she walks on water from Morgan Stanley. Ellen Zentner, how'd you do it? What, what'd you do to walk on water? Thanks, Tom. I think part of it is when you're in a, a large organization like Morgan Stanley, you have the benefit of global strategists covering every asset class, of global economists in every region, and coming together and that mind sharing and being sure that all those beans add up right. uh, is part of the process that helps <clears throat> what we call keeping it honest. Can I, and to Jim Gorman, and can I say this and, and tell me if I'm wrong, and what Steve Roach wrought with Richard Burner years ago was you people argue like cats, I mean, it goes back and forth. It's a very constructively argumentative process. Yes, isn't it, it? it is. So it is, yeah. And I would describe it as constructive. I mean, sometimes it can feel yes. like arguing, but it's, it's feedback, it's pushing. Back. And that's really important because uh, you take it, you listen to it, you make sure that you're looking at it in the way that this person is presenting to you. And so at least when you go out with a forecast, you go out with extremely strong conviction. I never could have stuck to our one hike call in 2015 or our one hike right. call in 2016 um, if I didn't have that debate mm -hmm. uh, to be darn sure that I felt convicted about that view. Uh, uh, Ellen, do, do people actually, first of all, congratulations on, uh, on the award, but do, do people um, debate enough? So maybe in your organization they do, but do, do, are people kind of vocal, um, are policymakers vocal enough and do they exchange views enough? Well, I think it's a, it's a, it is an absolutely great question. I mean, if you talk to Don Cohn, the former vice chair of the FOMC, uh, you know, he is one of those that will lament over the day that the Sunshine Act was put in place where they released transcripts with only a five-year lag. Uh, now, five years sounds like a lot, um, but five years, m most board governors have 14-year terms. Uh, and so he said after that was put in place, what had been very open, robust debate at the table uh, in the boardroom at the FOMC was everyone would come in with prepared <clears throat> marks and you would go around the table and read your prepared marks on how you felt about the economy and monetary policy and then say next and the next person would go on. And it really tamped down open debate and discussion at those meetings. That said, uh, something that certainly Chair Yellen stuck to when she was uh, uh, ahead of the FOMC was that she would have those conversations offline ahead of time before the meeting by phone um, so that those debates did not take place when the, where the transcripts would pick them up. Um, so I right. don't think it tamped it down completely, but um, yeah, much of it plays out on the, on the global stage as they're speaking publicly now, whereas it was never that way before.
But, but if you look at the BOE, it's uh, the Bank of England, it's very different to what, of course, you know, how the Fed does it. It's, um, is there a right or wrong way? And, and does that go back to just market functioning? If, if you have too many transparent and, you know, open debates in the public, do you have a higher chance of the market miscommunicating or misunderstanding? Yeah, so I think I think there is that that chance, right? Because you've got many voices. I remember the the uh, common complaint from clients of ours after Bernanke took over the Fed, the first uh, truly academic leader of the Fed, and he instilled his blue sky thinking where everyone had a say, and he encouraged everyone to speak publicly. You know, that certainly meant, especially if I traveled outside of the U.S., clients would say, "Who in the heck do I listen to?" I used to only yeah. have to listen to one man. Now there's seventeen. Well, can we listen to one man? Around. Let's listen to one man. Roll the tape, if you would, right now. Here's the president and central banker. My biggest threat is the Fed, because the Fed is raising rates too fast. And it's independent, so I don't speak to him. But I'm not happy with what he's doing, because it's going too fast. The president of the United States, with Trish Reagan dashing out with her new show over at Fox Biz. Good to see that. Ellen, there's the, there's the president right now threatening Fed independence. Everybody agrees on this as well. Let's back up to the call that made you famous, which is you had the courage to go out and say, no, it'll be slower. Bring that call up to date and what a Fed call into 2019 looks at. Do you still have a House cautious call? Yeah, I think compared to consensus, we're still um, on the more cautious side. Um, absolutely no reason for them to stop hiking right now. And they are completely convicted around this gradual pace. But what's the but next year? The but is that going into next year, they're completely divided between <clears throat> do they deliver two, three, or four hikes. And that's because the risks have risen as we go into next year. Now, there are upside risks if financial conditions stay easy. There are downside risks of trade, EM, uh, other international spillovers. We're talking about Brexit today. Uh, you know, those are, are uh, very real downside risks to the outlook as well. Uh, and so I think we should recognize that while the median dot uh, is at three hikes for next year for the FOMC. It's it's not a hard dot as I would mm -hmm. call it, right? They're completely divided, uh, and so I don't expect them to have any more clear clarity by the December meeting on how many times they should really hike next year. We think they will hike twice through June. We think by the time they come into that September meeting to debate whether they should hike again or not, the shape of growth, uh, if our forecasts hold true, will show that the economy is slowing back toward 2%. This is the other side of fiscal stimulus when that stimulus fades. Uh, and that that's going to be evidence that they must be around neutral and that enough of them will say, let's pause here and take a look around before deciding whether we need to be restrictive. That's how we think it will play out. That is less than what consensus is, is thinking, though, for hikes next year. All right. Ellen, thanks so much. Ellen Zentner there of Morgan Stanley. Joining us now, the former ambassador of the United States to Israel, Martin Indyk, who has had an exceptionally productive career in foreign policy and service to our National Security Council, working at Brookings and now with the Council on Foreign Relations. Ambassador, uh, we are thrilled to have you uh, with us today. What would you expect Mr. Erdogan will do after Riyadh and after the secretary's visit to Ankara? What is next for Turkey? Well, good morning, Tom. Thanks very much for having me on the program. Uh, uh, Erdogan is uh, in the uh, bazaar, and he has some important goods to sell. He's uh, trickling out to the press. The Wall Street Journal has details this morning, gruesome details of, of the audio recordings that are in the Turkish government's possession. What is he looking for is anybody's guess, but 
but you would know as well as I that the Turkish lira has been uh, struggling, uh, that the Turkish economy is in trouble, that Trump uh, doubled the tariffs on uh, Turkish steel. And so uh, I think he's looking for relief uh, in all of these respects uh, from some Saudi, uh, perhaps Saudi financial support, some relief from Trump. After all, he released the evangelical pastor that Trump was hoping for right before the uh, midterm elections here. Mm -hmm. So he's he's positioned himself very well to uh, right. to uh, get some payoffs. Here. Ambassador, one of the great things we've seen here is the use of sanctions. Jack Lew was with us uh, yesterday, the former Secretary of Treasury, talking about the non-efficacy of sanctions. What does Martin Indyk think of the use of sanctions by this administration, or frankly by other nations as well? Well, uh, in in general, sanctions have become more effective uh, more recently because uh, the Treasury, particularly under Jack Lew, uh, was quite, a, quite effective in tightening the financial sanctions because the United States dominates the financial sector, particularly issue of payments. It can hurt businesses that, that uh, ignore American sanctions. And so I think uh, they've become effect, more effective over time. Now, we're going to have a, an early test case of that proposition uh, on November 4th when the United States imposes, reimposes oil sanctions on Iran. And uh, we will see how many countries uh, decide to find alternative sources. And then the question, of course, is whether they can find alternative sources at reasonable prices. The big ones to watch are China and India because they're the biggest importers of oil from uh, uh, Iran. Uh, but uh, this crisis with Saudi Arabia comes at a, at a moment when the efficacy of those sanctions will depend on Saudi Arabia making up the shortage in supply that comes from taking Iranian oil off the markets. If the Saudis don't do that, uh, then the price of oil is going to spike, uh, not only giving the Saudis a uh, revenue windfall, but also helping the Iranians because they'll be able to discount their oil significantly and still be able to sell it in those circumstances. So, Martin, essentially, the approach towards Iran, does it complicate the United States' ability to confront Saudi Arabia, even if they wanted to? Completely. It's, it's the, the thing that we always need to take into account here is that Saudi Arabia, together with Israel, are the two pillars of Trump's anti-Iranian policy. They are critical partners in this effort. Uh, not normally partners, but Saudi Arabia and Israel have a common concern about Iranian uh, uh, hegemonic uh, efforts in, in the region. So uh, right at the moment, when uh, Trump is trying to impose maximum pressure on the Iranians, uh, Saudi Arabia has gone wobbly. And uh, there's likely to be a continuing kind of crisis between the United States and Saudi Arabia, not because of Trump, but because the Senate of the United States is really upset with uh, what uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia is alleged to have, have done with this uh, American resident journalist. And, and so... This is a train which uh, is you know, heading for a train crash, and it's very hard for Trump and Secretary of State Pompeo to put the brakes on it. So, Ambassador, I would love it if for our audience you could lift the lid 
on how international diplomacy works at a time like this. All we have to go on right now is the official line from the Secretary of State, Mr. Pompeo, and anything that he says and releases about conversations with Saudi Arabia. What's happening in the background right now with the officials from Turkey, Saudi Arabia, the United States? Tell us what we don't know. How does this work, the industry of diplomacy? Right, right. So... So uh, what you saw was the quick dispatch of Pompeo, first of all to Riyadh and then to Ankara. That tells us uh, that he is trying to put this crisis back in the box by working out understandings with the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia and the President of Turkey. That's the heart of his mission. It is not made easier, as usual, by, by President Trump, who has no discipline in this matter, he should be off the tweet waves and well, he should be off the airwaves so that Pompeo can try to do his job uh, and try to put together what he calls for, which is publicly, which is you know a thorough investigation on the one hand, and the Saudis have committed to that, and on the other hand, to try right. to get the Turks <clears throat> to stop leaking to the press, which undermines the whole effort. Mr. Ambassador, you have stated that this is the first real crisis that Mr. Trump faces. What does his team need to do to explain to him this is the real first crisis that he faces? Well, I think they need to walk him through uh, the way in which this can unravel his whole uh, strategy towards Iran, as well as uh, cause cause, uh, turmoil in the oil markets. Uh, especially if uh, if there's a challenge to the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia's leadership from other royals uh, in in the family in in Saudi Arabia, uh, they need to make him understand the gravity of the situation, and therefore the importance of discipline, something that he seems incapable of of uh, holding to, uh, because in a crisis every message has to be carefully controlled. This is not about a, uh, a midterm elections or about getting a judge confirmed. It's, it's about yeah. uh, international consequences uh, in which things can spin out of control quite easily. Ambassador, thank you so much. Martin Indyk with the Council on Foreign Relations, the former United States ambassador uh, to Israel. I'm so excited please about do, this. Please Our do. guest, I'm going to let you bring him in because he's incredible in finance. He has one of the 10 greatest tweets ever on Uber rides. What's that? It's ever. New York City was clearly drinking whiskey and refused to share. He's the only one who gets to drown out his depression on a Wednesday morning. That's one of the 10 best tweets ever. Somebody keeps track of this stuff. Interesting. Ugly do Uber you, rides. Do you, do you rank them? Ugly I don't Uber rank rides. them. No, the article ranked them for him. There, there's some hilarious ones. Joel Levington joins us now, Bloomberg Intelligence Credit and Strategy Analyst. Do, do you have a worse Uber nightmare? Uh, no, I, everything is always pleasant and happy in an Uber car. He's about to discuss the bonds. What are you, the, what are you an underwriter? <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about it. Yes. Come to market. Yes. Tell me what they were coming to market with, what they upsize it to, and just how big the order book is. Sure. Yeah. No, it's a big. Uh, it's a big deal. They came. Uh, they're issuing uh, two bonds. A um, a five-year and an eight-year. Looks like the five-year is being priced at 7.5%. Wow. And the uh, eight-year at 8%. And that, to me, looks, uh, particularly the eight-year, looks uh, tight uh, relative to oh, the peer oh, Come group. on, that's like high-yield junk, 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 right? 
It is junk, junk, junk. It's it's, it's expected to get uh, junk, junk, junk ratings, uh, B minus and B three at Moody's. What does that mean to the to mere mortals like me that don't memorize our below triple A numbers? Sure, uh, it means How that junk, it's, junk, junk is that junk, junk, junk. It means that it's one notch uh, slightly higher than um, the triple C category, which is viewed as having I, a I, one in three chance of, bankrupt, uh, of bankruptcy within a year. Let me stop here, folks. What you just heard from Mr. Levinson is so important, John. Uber is rated one notch above triple C, and yet it's the greatest company since time began. We have very little I believe detail in all my on years the financials. Of doing this, I've never heard this. But what I think is interesting about this is we've seen this from Netflix and we saw this from Tesla last year as well. You can have the attractiveness of the equity somehow reflected in the debt, which makes no sense because the upside is going to be in the equity and not in the debt. But for some reason, the attractiveness of taking a slice of equity turns up in the bond market. Why does that happen, Joel? Why is that happening? It, 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 it happens all the time, John. I, you know, like as a, a young credit analyst years and years ago, you know, if we go back like 20 years, one of the first jobs that I looked at was long-term capital management. And it was the same exact that thing. That worked out. That worked out really well. Luckily for us, we weren't involved in it. Uh, but it's the same thing. People see the growth and the opportunity and they fail to look at the risks. And that's what credit is supposed to be about. So quality is really interesting to me right now. High yield. And I don't know if you saw this this morning, Tom. JP Morgan pointing out junk bond issuance is on course to be the lowest this year since 2009. It's basically going to come in okay, at $155 billion okay. year-to-date so far. And that's really important, okay. supply shortage in this space. On this 7% paper, where do they pay that interest coupon? When you clip your Uber coupon in the back of your Lyft vehicle and mail off the coupon or take it down to the broker, it just comes out of like cash on the balance sheet, right? It does, because if you look at the, uh, the data that the Wall Street Journal has, they're saying yeah. that it, uh, the company generates significantly negative EBITDA margins. So it's not generating any profit. So it's just draining the, the cash that Who it has. Who is buying this beautiful? I mean, our, our long-only institutional retirement you know, widow portfolios buying Uber at 7% coupon? Well, that I, I, it is a private placement. So uh, I hope it's not because there's no liquidity in the bonds once you have a private placement. It becomes a much tougher issue to, to trade, which actually makes things like Tesla, which the bond is uh, 15 points below its initial pricing, uh, much more interesting, which also yields uh, the same yield as the, as the Uber bond. What does Uber look like in eight years? And would you be willing to hold an eight-year note through to maturity well, but, but, with but a the, yield of 8%? But seriously, the point here, Joel, this is a great conversation, is it's a private transaction. That's the really, I mean, how many people will buy this piece? Is it like four people, four sovereign wealth funds? Well, it's oh, oversubscribed. We so somebody's buying it. I just, you know, again, if I go back to my history, uh, a great portfolio manager that I worked with said, if you're not getting paid to take the risk, why are you doing it? And it feels like there's a lot of risks here in terms of lack of disclosure, lack of liquidity, um, lack of cash flow, and the company has said that it's not well, going to be profitable for three years. Okay, but critically, in the bond prospectus, do they see the financials? That I don't know because it's not, it's not public. We don't know. No. John, this is, that's, that's one of the reasons I think you take the, the, you take the bond offering private because it's a, a limited pool of investors. And I, I guess the finances are in a, a limited set of hands, Joe, as yeah, well. In, in theory, uh, that will be disclosed next year, right? Because uh, Uber has to go public next year. Uh, otherwise, uh, I, I believe a bunch of investors on the equity side 
have the option of cashing out on the, uh, from the SoftBank uh, venture fund. Interesting. So here's the other interesting thing for me. Walk us through Covenant Light and how much of an issue this is in fixed income right now. I'm talking about the quality of the debt that comes to the market, the covenants that used to be attached to it and are no longer attached to it. Sure. Well, covenants are, are never an issue until there's an issue. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, that's the way the market works. And what happens Excuse is... Excuse me, John Tucker, which marriage was he describing there? <laughs> uh, take your pick. You got six of them to go through. Continue, Joel. I have to interrupt. <laughs> covenants um, are like the prenup. Tom. Oh really? They're like, they're like the prenup. Thank if you, this, if the marriage doesn't have go well, if the marriage doesn't go well, you can basically say you can have one of the covenants can be say the house, or if the marriage isn't oh, going really? so well, you can basically say to them stop spending in the shops. When you start to get rid of those covenants, the agreement you have Excuse me, with stop. the issuer have you ever been becomes married? a little bit lighter. <laughs> yeah. The only thing I would say, John, is with my covenants, and I've been married for 15 years, uh, they never get amended. <laughs> they've, been, they've been pretty tough covenants. Um, but, you know, the, the, the problem is with, uh, with uh, deals that are getting done today is that it's being done at a toppy kind of part of the cycle. And so they're being done with light covenants, meaning a lot of room and capacity. And when the market turns down, those are the bondholders okay. that are going to get hurt the hardest first is there a bet within a private placement that they go to a premium if they come at par 100 that they trade positive or in a private placement is there even price discovery one week one quarter one year on it's pretty limited um you know when you have these darker markets like a structured finance sure, or yeah, a private yeah. placement you wind up using third-party <clears throat> data now yeah. luckily here at bloomberg we can use a bval curve or something to to, to price and say oh, like this is what you happening. see how he gets the product place good isn't michael it? bar doesn't do that michael no, bar, I don't. Did, you do a, <laughs> did you do a bval curve today yeah. no i did not, <laughs> you did not? what is a bval curve please sure we have curves here at bloomberg which can uh, show you at different ratings what a bond mm -hmm. should be priced at um, and okay. so you could use something like that to help you discover it, but you really never know because there's not a public market where you could just go and trade. Can you come back and be the official surveillance marriage counselor? I mean, the idea that you've been married 15 years is wonderful. We say good morning, Mrs. Levinson. It's really cool. I think that's what my career has been meant for. Okay, very good. <laughs> Our marriage counselor, Joel Levinson, with us this morning. Busy day for Prime Minister May in Brussels today. She'll be meeting with the EU Council President Donald Tusk. Then later this evening, she'll address the bloc's 27 leaders who will then convene over dinner without her. Um, <laughs> honestly, the way politics works I, I, in so Brussels. Glad. Don't you love that? And our guest will explain that. Yeah, our guest <laughs> is going to explain that now. The thoughtful and always outspoken Wolfgang Munchau, Euro Intelligence President. Wolfgang, what is going on in Europe today and how do you explain this process to people? Yeah, it's hard to explain European processes to people in, 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 in general. The, re the reason they're having dinner among themselves is because they need, to, they need to agree their own negotiating position. Now, we're not going to get any big breakthroughs on Brexit. Uh, the whole thing is stalled. 
Um, but there is a, is a ray of hope, and uh, at least they, they, they want to avoid this uh, kind of disaster they had at their most recent uh, summit in, in, in the Austrian city of Salzburg, where uh, everyone left, went home angry and, and, uh, and resentful of each other. Uh, so, so the purpose of this meeting is simply to get it over with and have another one in November and uh, December. I think there is a possibility that they might agree a deal in December, but the main purpose today is for everyone really to shut up. Who shapes the policy of the 27? Because it seems to me we have a good cop in Chancellor Merkel and a bad cop in Mr Macron. How do they reconcile their differences within the 27? Um, in the end, my, my hunch is that the Merkel position will prevail because it isn't, it isn't fundamentally a German position. It is also a German position. Germany is a massive exporter. It has a trade surplus with the UK of 50 billion a year. Uh, hundreds of thousands of jobs would be at stake if the UK were to drop out of the uh, EU without a deal. Um, the, people are not making enough of this. This is a really important yeah. uh, factor that drives the German position, but also the Dutch position and the position of the Nordic member states. Uh, France has different interests, um, but, but, but a, a no-deal Brexit would be an absolute disaster for Ireland. And the EU ultimately you know, speaks here with a majority voice. Macron has no, no veto on this. And while France yeah. and Germany want to do, uh, you know, act together, there is no, 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 no need at this stage for a, a device for a division, mm. um, uh, there is a clear, a clear indication that they will compromise. And this whole readiness to compromise uh, is new. That wasn't there a month ago when they basically right. indicated they would. Now well, they're saying about, you know, we're going to extend the transitional period. Now, they won't compromise on the Irish backstop. There will be an Irish backstop. They can't just say, oh, forget about this. But, uh, you know, there will be, there will be, there will, right. they will at least make an effort to make it possible for the British to say, with a straight face, this is a reasonably good deal. Yeah. Wolfgang Munchau with us. Wolfgang, you uh, invented a huge part of business journalism with your work with the Financial Times Deutschland for years. I still lament the idea of them ceasing publication. I believe it was 2012. You are one of our great experts on your Germany. Your thoughts on the Bavarian election, where I observed a piece of Germany going to the far right and a lot of other people in an uproar going to the far left or to the green left. Is it a barbell Germany? It's getting there. It's, it's definitely getting there. But if you look at the actual number of voters, the CSU, which is the, the party that has been governing Bavaria pretty much forever, um, the CDSU didn't lose that many votes. It was not a great result. The, the percentage was down by about 10. But you know, they, were, they were at about 47, and they're now at, at about 37%. Um, not great in terms of you know, what they had five years ago, but they hang on to most of their voters. The whole participation in the, in the election went up uh, quite a lot. They hang on to most of their voters. Uh, the party that really lost there were the Social Democrats. Now, they used to be the main opposition party, and now they're down to 9% of the votes. They kind of collapse, and the Social Democrats also collapse in the Netherlands, in other European, Italy, yeah. in other European countries. That's pretty much the main story of that. And, you know, if you look at the, the, the combined vote of the left, the three parties of the left, they haven't changed. It's just that the Social Democrats are collapsing, 
and the Greens are gaining. That's been the main, the main effect. And interestingly, also in Bavaria, you have the AFD, which is the far-right party, uh, a, a very far-right party with some, some real fascist leanings. They got about just a little over 10%. They're not as strong there as they are yeah. in well, other states. Wolfgang, you know what? Yes. We're out of time. John Farrow's livid we're out of time because this is a I spirited I had one final discussion. answer that requires so a one-word answer. Please. Who lasts longer, Prime Minister Conti or Chancellor Merkel? I would think um, Conti would last longer. That's amazing. Wolfgang Munchau, yeah. Euro Intelligence we'll President back on, again on European soon. Politics. Yeah. We need to get him back on that. Writing for the Financial Times and, of course, a lot of other... Uh, important duties from Germany to London. Wolfgang Moncho. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.